Welcome to the Linguali podcast. This week, James and I are joined by Alexander Dreschel. Hi, Alexander. Hello, James and Sophie. Nice to be on the podcast. Good to have you with us. Some of you may know Alexander as the tablet interpreter. He's a staff interpreter with the European Commission's Directorate General for Interpretation and a self-confessed technology geek. Of course, today you are speaking with us in a purely private capacity and not on behalf of the European Commission or representing their positions. Now with that little disclaimer out of the way, let's jump straight in. You have said before that your love of languages and communication is only matched by your affection for mobile devices. But what made you first start using an iPad on assignments? Uh, well, that is a very good question. Um, I, I think I have to go back just a little bit. So when when I started working on a regular basis, which was in 2007, I think, uh, I mainly used a laptop, a MacBook and a booth, and I was quite happy with that. But I soon realized uh, it's actually a little bit too much. Uh, a laptop does too much. It can be distracting. I have the charger. And basically all I want in the booth when I work is just to have access to my documents and maybe do a little bit of research when, when I don't know the terms or, or I have to look something up. Mm-hmm. So the, the MacBook or the laptop always seemed overkill to me. And I was looking around for different things. So this this was before the first iPad came out. And I, I mean, there were tablet computers, these Windows-based tablets, which were awful, basically, <laughs> uh, because they were just uh, laptops with a touchscreen. That's not what I wanted. Uh, I looked into Kindles a little bit, but they weren't quite there either. They were just basically e-readers. That, that was a little, that was not enough. Um, so I, I fiddled around. I had a, a laptop and then one of these smaller netbooks, which were basically also awful. And I really, I had a sigh of relief when I when I learned that I that Apple would come out with the iPad. And I'm, I bought it basically on day one and, and started using it in the booth um, from day one because it was just what I needed. I mean, there were a few restrictions. Some of the things have improved, but basically I, I've never looked back and I'm very happy with this class of devices in, in the booth. How do you think it's helped you with your work? Well, well, as I said, a, a traditional laptop was always a bit of a distraction to me because it, it could do so many things. It, it would always prompt you for something and then you had, you had to do an update here and take care of something else there. And it, it was just too clunky as well. And, and the, the tablets and specifically the iPad are just the perfect form factor, the perfect size for me. So first of all, they're very lightweight, uh, easy to carry around. You just have a very small charger. And basically, if you charge it overnight, it's good to go for the whole day. You basically don't need to charge it. Um, then it, it's, it's a great size for the booth. You know, it's often very cramped. We don't have a lot of space, so it's, it's a good size. There is no keyboard, so then there's, there's no clickety-clackety sound, which annoys my colleagues and which annoys me as well, maybe. Um, and there's no fan, so it doesn't make a lot of noise. That was that was just uh, perfect. So, and and the focus on just one app at a time, uh, I think that has helped me focus more on the task at hand and not just fiddle around with other things at the same time. I think it was really um, so, so everything related to the physical form of the, of the object mm-hmm. and also the the limitations of the software. You did a presentation over the weekend at the American Translators Association conference called Kiss Paper Goodbye. How eager did you find the interpreters there to embrace the iPad and technology in general? Yeah, well, just to preface this, it was the first time I attended the ATA conference, which is huge. I mean, there were over 1,800 participants. Um, this time, it's really quite a an overwhelming experience, a great experience, but it can be quite overwhelming. And, and James has certainly seen that as well because he was there um, as well as an exhibitor. So, so it was great. And we, my co-presenter, Holly and I, we had worked before 
um, on things. We had done a podcast together. We've been in touch on Twitter, but it was only virtual. And it was the first time we'd met in real life. So that was an additional um, factor as well. And they gave us quite a, a big room, which was great, but we were also sort of anxious about it. Would, would there be enough people interested or would we sit in a basically empty room? But it turned out that there were a lot of people there. There was a, a, a good amount of interest. And um, we had a little uh, kind of survey at the beginning of the presentation to get a feel for the audience in the room. And it turned out that a lot of people already had tablets, but not all of them had been using them for work. So. Uh, it was very clear that they were interested in in using that technology, which they may have used in private for, I don't know, browsing the web or, or watching Netflix, that kind of thing. So there really was an interest to, to use it into a tool for work. Um, and the feedback that we've gotten so far has been very, very positive. So people were very uh, interested in finding out more about that. Um, so definitely uh, a strong interest. And I see the same here at work um, with my colleagues. I, I get a lot of uh, questions about it. And just when you travel as well, you see a lot of tablets in the wild now, which was not the case a couple of years ago. And it was interesting, Alex, wasn't it? Just thinking of the ATA, because I think not only were there a lot more interpreters there than either of us had expected to encounter, but also they really were keen to look at where the innovations, where the technology and the ways they could change the way they work. There there was a very, very open-minded approach to it all, I found. That is absolutely true, yeah. And I was quite surprised, positively surprised as well, to see so many interpreters there. Um, Because often, I mean, interpreting is a smaller profession, I think, compared to translation. So um, that can sometimes mean that you see fewer people at the conferences and maybe fewer sessions offered. But I think the ATA people have really managed to to find a very good balance in terms of uh, attendees and also sessions. And as you say, technology um, exhibitors, technology-based exhibitors uh, that were focusing on the interpreting segment. So there were several exhibitors, one of them Linguali, and yeah, I definitely observed uh, a, a huge interest from, from people. And sometimes that's the impression I got from personal conversations is um, that they realize that they have to engage with technology. Sometimes they're even forced to because let's say they, they work for a big medical provider and that medical provider is switching increasingly to its technology different kinds of things, phone interpreting, video remote interpreting, whatever. So um, some of them really want to engage and some of them also have to engage. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, Barry um, Olson was saying to me that the interpreter section is the second largest in the ATA um, behind the Hispanics and the the Spanish. So there are clearly the, um, I don't know if that's historical or if there's been a recent increase, but clearly um, there there is a need, isn't there, for interpreters to get together. Um, meet Absolutely. one another, meet providers and uh, and to move forwards in this area. Yeah, and that's exactly what you get out of these kind of conferences. And and I was surprised to hear that as well, that, that it's such a big part of um, ATA. And I think that's also a bit of a difference between the sort of European interpreting market or yes. community, if you will, and the American one, because they've had a completely different development in terms of medical interpreting uh, and also just community interpreting, which I think is still only about to happen in the European uh, interpreting community, at least that's my impression. That's the the impression I've got where it really does seem to be already booming in the States, doesn't it? It's a huge, huge uh, section of their work. Yes, and and they are now very much already in this progression where they have to use new technologies just to keep up with uh, the demand, which is is keeping up or or growing stronger actually uh, all the time. 
Yes, and actually um, um, Esther Navarro-Hall from Najit, she was saying to me that um, the largest sector of uh, interpreting in the States is actually judicial as well. Yeah. Yes. So um, I think it is. It's a very it's it's a very different market from from the European one, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's also related to the fact that they already or they have had a legal requirement for this uh, linguistic access uh, in in the US for a for a longer time. Apparently, Uh, a similar right, I think, exists in Europe, but only for the courts, not necessarily for the medical um, area as well. So it's it's it's, uh, a very different process in a way. Now, I was downstairs um, holding the fort on our stand during the ATA, <laughs> yes. so I, did, I didn't see the sky. But I'd be really interested to know, what were the, uh, the presentations that you were able to attend? What were those that you found interesting in, in particular? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you would say uh, able to attend, because that's really one of the problems, in a way, of these huge conferences that you have four or maybe even five tracks going on at the same time. And, and often you'll find yourself having three or four presentations in the same time slot mm. that all sound very interesting. You were spoiled um, for choice. Absolutely spoiled for choice, yes. So, But uh, the thing is, it is accepted at the ADA conference that you maybe leave a session that might not be up to what you expected, or maybe you want to catch another one which goes on at the same time. So uh, as long as you leave the room quietly and politely, that that's absolutely okay, which is good to know, and they told us that before. Um, but a, a few interesting ones, I, I saw all kinds of different ones. So I saw some about interpreting, obviously. So the one I really liked was the one given by Barry Olson on Saturday about remote interpreting. Is the sky the limit or is the sky falling down or something like that, that which was very interesting. Um, also, I saw uh, exotic ones, I would say, about translating political terms from the campaign coverage into Russian, which was uh, odd, but very, very interesting nonetheless. What else did I see? Um, I attended one about financial terminology, about accounting. So there's all kinds of things. So you can really, you can also take a peek into things that you would never, you know, encounter elsewhere. That's what I, what I liked about it. No, it was, it was, it really was a very rich, rich um, event, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. And uh, the, the session just before the one that Holly and I gave uh, was done by Christina Silva and was um, not only about tablets, but more in general about, I think she called it um, tools and toys for Terps, which was rather nice. So she nice. was looking, uh, had a very broad perspective on technology. So, for example, using a, a teleprompter with video recording to improve your delivery and just your public speaking. Um dictionary resources so that that was a very good fit with the one that came straight after excellent and, well, I, once, uh, I'm, yeah. sorry, I'm sorry i missed them <laughs> yeah you, you you probably missed a lot of sessions holding for in the, yeah you can't in the be, basement I'm, with the exhibitors yeah no i know interpreters we can do some things at the same time but we can't be two places at the same time unfortunately now um i We'd be interested to ask you as well. (laughs) (laughs) Interested to ask you. So you're saying you've been interpreting since 2007, have you? That's about right. Yeah. So I I graduated in 2004 or five, uh, then had an additional year at another university. But yeah, basically 2007 is where I, when I started in my recent uh, job. Okay. So what are the changes and how have you seen your job evolve since that time? Well, there's a bit of a, a dissonance, I think, between uh, the interpreting that we do for the international institutions and the interpreting that is done on the private market, as we like to call it in a, in a complete overgeneralization. Yes. Um, so that I think that the most 
visible change for us here in the institutions has been um, that uh, English has become more and more prevalent. So uh, communication takes place increasingly in, in English, also by non-native speakers, obviously. That doesn't mean that interpretation is going away completely, but it's, it's certainly changing insofar as that you have more non-native speakers um, of English and just more communication going on in English in general. Um, and we have also started uh, working uh, remotely, but in a very limited segment. Um, so we, we use here in the institutions, we use uh, video remote interpreting in a very specialized context. It's only yeah. done for the heads of state and government for their working dinners because they wanted this very private atmosphere where we really only um, the key players are in the room and everybody else has to leave the room. Right. So, so that's what's happening. But it's, it's, it's maybe not the remote that people think of because basically the interpreters here are in the same building. They're just in a different meeting room and then they have big screens in front of the booths. Uh, it's a very sophisticated, very high quality um, setup, which is nothing like doing remote um, on an ad hoc basis or on Skype or stuff like that. So it's, it's very specific to the institutions. I can well imagine. Um, and do you find that, um, does that work well? Do you enjoy doing that type of uh, mission? Well, I haven't done it myself, um, but the feedback that I get from, you know, personal conversations with, with colleagues is that not everybody likes it. Uh, some people are, are very adamant um, to be in the same room and there are good arguments for that, obviously. But I mean, uh, in, a, in a way, these are demands that the clients put to us. So we have to somehow react to that. And somehow that reaction is to say, OK, but and then you can say what as an interpreter you need in terms of working conditions to be able to deliver a good quality, because if you don't deliver good quality, there's no point in doing interpreting. And at least that's that's my opinion. Absolutely. So that's that's what took place. It, it was a difficult negotiation uh, negotiating process. But um, I think overall, we managed to, to come to a good solution that is uh, more or less in the interest of everyone involved. And that's what we've been doing so far. And that's interesting, because that does go back to another one of Bill Wood's good um, quotes, which is that the and I, I, um, I learned this one in Barry's Wednesday session, um, mm -hmm. which was actually a training session for interpreters. But he said uh, it, he was quoting Bill Wood. And I think it's very true that uh, the, your product or your service is what's going into the participant's ear and not what's coming out of the interpreter's mouth <laughs> yeah exactly and i suppose that's a classic example of it isn't it where actually if for, to have a more intimate experience at a dinner of that nature to have the people mm. out of the room to make that interpreting seem as seamless and as invisible as possible mm -hmm. um that clearly they if, if it's requested it's because they feel that it does um facilitate easier conversation yeah, apparently that's um, that's the case. And uh, I saw that quote as well. And I must admit, I, ha I had to think about it for a little moment because it's, it's not immediately obvious. But I think the more you think about it, the more you'll find um, I, yes. that, that it's actually true. Well, yeah. it was the same for me when I first um, when I first uh, heard Barry saying it, although I did hear it in context. So it helped somewhat. But it's the, it is it's this idea that Barry was giving it in terms of sort of a good working practices for, for interpreters. But for example, if you're using portal equipment, portable equipment, not to turn off uh, your transmitter because uh, the participants get that awful white sound noise blasting into their ears yes. um, so as, as well as you might be doing the interpreting job and at the moment what well, you can quite easily deteriorate the experience with um, things like that so bearing in mind at all times what is, what's actually happening to the participants and what's going into their ears um, it is an interesting idea I think sometimes we might have a tendency to forget that 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think there's, there's another point here, a very practical one, is that we as interpreters often complain about the delegates. They, do, they don't speak directly into the microphone or they <laughs> forget to take their headphones off and then there's interference. Well, actually, we as interpreters also sometimes lack a bit of rigor or discipline when it comes to you know, speaking directly into the microphone and making sure that it also sounds pleasant to the people who have us right inside their ear. So I, I maybe maybe I'm partic paying particular attention to this because I also do podcasts, um, which are very much about the sound experience. But, but I think it, it helps if we also think about that, not just um, being accurate and, and complete, but also in providing a pleasant experience uh, because delegates have to listen to us all day. It, 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 sh it should be pleasant. Very true indeed. What impacts do you think technology will have on the way interpreters work? Um, well, that's a, it's. That's a good question. It's it's always had uh, an influence on our work. I mean, as, as simultaneous, that's what I keep saying, as simultaneous interpreters, we wouldn't be able to, to work at all if it weren't for technology, because we rely on all the conference equipment and the microphones and, and everything to be able to do our job in, in the booth. So um, it's not like technology is something new or that has only recently uh, occurred. It's, it just keeps changing all the time, as technologies want to do. So, so I think it behooves us to keep a very close eye on those changes and then see how it affects our work and um, what we can do about it. So it, it doesn't mean that we go with every trend, that we pick up every new technology that exists, but I think we should at least, you know, um, be very mindful, look at it and then see, okay, is this something that can be useful? Is that something that will my that will make my work impossible? Or what, what does it mean for interpreting? I think that's that's the, the question that we have to ask ourselves. Do you think the interpreters that refuse to embrace technology, that they will perhaps get left behind? Well, I think there's certainly a danger that this, that this might happen. And I think there's a, I'm not sure, is it by Bill Wood as well? There's another quote which says that interpreters will not be replaced by technology, but by interpreters that use technology. And I think that's exactly, exactly. right. Um, because it becomes increasingly difficult to, um, I think, stick with the old methods of working because the world around us is changing. And who are we to say, no, no, this this must not happen. This, we cannot do this. I mean, it's, it's just not an option. Uh, if we like it or not, we have to somehow deal with it. So I think the interpreters that manage to do that and still manage to provide um, good quality, manage to provide a good service to the customer, because that's what the profession is about, they will survive. And I, I think the people who refuse to engage with technology, they'll find it increasingly difficult, uh, I think, to to maintain the position on, on the market. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point that you just mentioned. And funnily enough, I'd never actually thought of it in such clear terms that simultaneous interpreting is the child of technology anyway. Yes. Um, so it would seem natural that that continue to evolve. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, it's it, it's interesting... I don't, I don't know, I've maybe beaten this topic to death, but I really like the comparison between um, what happened when simultaneous interpretation had this big breakthrough at the Nuremberg Trials yeah. and all the people who did it, who are, I mean, they are now considered pioneers, but back then they were really looked down upon by their fellow interpreters who said, oh, well, this, 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 can't be, this can't be working right, this is not good, this is not how we always used to do things. <laughs> and yet... It, it is today, you know, the, at least in the institutional context, it's certainly the prevalent mode of, of doing interpreting. So it's, it's interesting to compare that a little bit with what happens now with uh, remote interpreting, for example. 
Yeah, well, like you say, you know, it has created a profession, hasn't it? That, that, that those innovations for the trials that they've created the the simultaneous interpreting profession. So, absolutely, yes. Do you not the type of remote interpreting that you were talking about before, where you're still in the building, the type mm. of remote interpreting over Skype or in another country? Do you see that is a do you see that as a threat or as an opportunity for some interpreters? <laughs> well, I think that it, that depends on to some extent on on your perspective on how you see technology. Um, so, what's what's the framing basically? Do you want to see it as a threat because it's new, because it's different, or can you also see the the possibilities or the opportunities that it provides? And I think um, there are also threats because I mean we're using Skype right now to the, to record this podcast, and it's great. But it's also true, and I think we've we've also had bad experiences with Skype, whether the quality wasn't up to snuff or maybe it broke down. Because if, if these things happen, then it's uh, it's not good communication because uh, we cannot deliver interpreting when the communication breaks down or the connection breaks down. So I think there's a little bit of both, and I think that's also why we have to make a case for what we as interpreters need, not to please ourselves, but to be able to provide good quality to the customer. So it's it's not about saying no to the customer just for the no sake or because it's it's different, but because we want to provide them with a good result. I think that's that's the thing. So it's in a way it's a little bit of both. No, you're absolutely right because I mean right now, for example, we have a fairly stable, uh, good quality connection, but um, Knock on wood. I I wouldn't say the audio for would now. the audio for now, <laughs> yeah, but the audio would certainly or probably wouldn't be good enough to be able to comfortably interpret from. I don't think. Yeah. Um, you do need exactly. a st- somewhat richer sound, I think, don't you, to be able to, st- to stay clearly on track? Well, I think it, you especially need it when you do simul- simultaneous. Mm. So when you really need to get the the sound input and you, you speak at the same time, then the sound should really be top notch. I think when you do consecutive, you, you still need good sound, obviously, to be able to, to understand. But I think maybe the tolerance is a little higher to some interference. But at yeah, least you're it, not it really depends. Yeah. At least you're not competing with the inbound sound, as it were, when you're doing consec, are you? That's exactly right, yes. And in consecutive, there's there's a higher tolerance, um, I think, uh, towards the interpreter just asking, can you repeat the last thing? I didn't quite catch that figure <laughs> yeah. on that kind of thing. We, we can't is, get away with doing yeah. that, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly. That doesn't really work in simultaneous. No. So there you go. Which technology do you think has had the most positive impact on interpreting? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, and I, th- yeah, I don't know if you can if you can pinpoint it um, to a specific technology. I mean, we've just said that um, conference technology made simultaneous interpretation possible in the first place. So you could certainly say that maybe it's that conference technology. Um, but I think it's it's difficult to pinpoint uh, a specific kind of technology because there's so many things going on. Now, the internet certainly uh, has made a huge impact. First of all. Uh, because it allows us to connect, uh, connect with other interpreters, connect with uh, customers. It allows us to do our research much more easily than was possible before. Mm. I mean, I, I can rem- remember a little bit what it was like before having the internet and having to do research at the local library, and it was okay, but it wasn't fun. It wasn't the same, was compared it? Compared I mean, to, yeah, just Googling something. So I, have a, I actually have a dictionary somewhere, um, an engineering dictionary, only in one mm-hmm. direction. Uh, English yes. English into French. I think I paid uh, at the time. I paid a thousand francs for it. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's amazing when you think back to those specialized dictionaries, and you paid an arm and a leg for that. 
And I think there's still a case for having some of them just for the for the initial research. And, and these things still exist. They're just more user friendly now because of technology. Because, I mean, first of all, we use them on CD-ROMs and now we would probably use them online. Yeah. And it just gives us, gives us access to so much material. I mean, sometimes it can be overwhelming. So you have to have, I think, good research strategies um, to be able to cope with all the information that is potentially out there. But uh, it has made research um, much easier. And then, of course, the Internet now also plays a role in, in uh, well, I guess, disrupting conference technology in a way because um, you use it as infrastructure for providing uh, remote interpreting. So uh, a, a lot of uh, effects, certainly. But I find it difficult to say this technology has really made the most impact or the most positive impact. Yes, although I'm probably, as you quite rightly say, the the biggest impact has just been having Google in the booth. <laughs> just oh, certainly. Be, yeah. Being able to look up, look something up and look at it in context and check the translation you think is the correct one is actually the correct one. And, uh, exactly. So that probably is, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's this also all kinds of creative ways that you can use a, a search engine. It's, it's not just Google. There are other ones as well, of course. So, for example, if, if you hear a term and you're, you're not quite sure what it is or if it mean, or if it's the thing that you're thinking of, what I find quite useful is to just do an image search for this term and then just quickly look at the image and say, OK, that's exactly what I had in mind. I or maybe it's more. not. Yeah, I think uh, Google sometimes, image search is great, yeah. isn't it? It's amazing, exactly, because uh, when you really stretch for time, as is the case in simultaneous, you can't read a whole page or, or a, uh, you know, a Wikipedia article. You just want a quick uh, confirmation or otherwise. So that's that's useful. Now, I'd be interested with you working on the institutional side of our profession. Um, what I've noticed over the past years is um, in, in what we could call the old days, uh, I, w- I would very systematically be provided with the, with the relevant documentation generally you know maybe a week before at least a few days before the event Mm. which nowadays has become a rare occurrence um which which actually you're talking about the joy of being able to look stuff up on the online quickly um is that something that affects you as well on the institutional side or is that not as relevant you mean having preparation well actually yeah and getting and actually be given the resources to prepare um Um, in a timely manner yeah, we're actually in a good situation there because since it's all, um, since we have all those structures in place, I mean, uh, the, our customers, they have to go through quite a procedure um, to have interpretation in their meetings. So um, they want to organize a meeting. They want to make sure they have the right meeting room that can seat all the participants. Then they'll look at what kind of interpretation they need. They will tell this uh, to the service and the service uh, will then make sure that um, there are uh, sufficient booths in the room and that interpreters are placed into those booths. And there's also a team that makes sure that we get uh, at least the agenda, but also the uh, background materials and additional documentation. We have a huge pile of glossaries, electronic uh, glossaries in the service that uh, were made by interpreters and that are used by interpreters. So we can just draw from uh, a huge pile of material usually on top of all the things that are you know available on the internet so i think we're, we're a little bit spoiled there because we don't necessarily have to go um hunt for all that information as is sometimes the case elsewhere absolutely no i mean sometimes for us it can be a it can be a task in itself just to find out the name of the client so you can google the company and see what they actually exactly. do <laughs> yes yeah and that's i mean that often takes takes up a lot of time right so um it can, yeah, when you get that information yeah. from the client it makes it much easier Oh, it does indeed. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I was trying to get across earlier, is that when, when we have 
demands towards the client or the customer and say, we need this, we need that, we should always make clear that it's not because we're lazy or something, but really we, we want to prepare as good as possible. Uh, and we want to deliver really good quality. That's what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something Barry brought up in his workshop on Wednesday as well, um, sort of that it would be a good idea for interpreters to get into the habit of explaining to customers that these requirements are to ensure their meeting goes as well as possible and not because we're stroppy prima donnas that we're, who um, just expect <laughs> everything to be handed to them on a plate. <laughs> is, is that the term he used? <laughs> I don't know if he said it quite as brutally as yeah. I just did, but he, I think that was what he meant. <laughs> Certainly to the point, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important to, I mean, some people call that client education, which is maybe not a, a very good term, but I think that's the kinds of, it's kind of the direction that we should be aiming at. German and English are your main languages, but you also have French and Romanian as your C language. How often do you work with your C languages? Um, well, I said earlier that, that English is becoming uh, increasingly important as a language of communication. So the, there's really a lot going on in English. There's a lot going on in French, but considerable less um, than English, certainly. And, and Romanian is really one of the, as we call them, small languages. Mm -hmm. So they're not necessarily in all the meetings. Uh, Romanian is usually in um, kind of medium-sized to bigger-sized meetings. Um, and size, in this case, refers to the number of active and passive languages that, that we have um, available. So I certainly don't do as much Romanian as I would like to. But yeah, um, occasionally, I would say. So what are the um, what are your community of uh, the EU interpreters saying after Brexit and uh the potential changes there are the are the active english <laughs> speakers getting concerned that they might not be required or well i mean i mean we of course i mean we're bummed by the decision i mean just watching the whole process take place of course it's 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 very sad to see that um it is uh, that this decision has been taken um so it, it's certainly something that we talk about a lot i mean obviously we're very close to the to the developments um but it's also true that the uh, I think the president of the commission has said um, that for uh, all the UK officials in the institutions, a solution will be found uh, to make sure that they're, they're okay. But I mean, just as everyone else, nobody really knows what's what's going to happen next. And um, we will only know uh, when the negotiations um, start for real. So once the, the famous Article 50 has been triggered by the UK, and, and that may yet um, take a while. So and for we talk about guys, it a lot of course, still, uh... but, uh, you guys Sorry? will be on. You guys will be on the front line for these uh, negotiations as well. Yes, I mean we'll, we'll, there will probably be some interpreters involved in the negotiations as well. Um, I, I suspect. What did you think about uh, the comments that uh, the negotiations should all be conducted in French? <laughs> yeah, I mean there was this. Uh, I think a, a media report a couple of weeks ago about uh, Michel Barnier. Mm -hmm who's the head or who will be the head negotiator for the commission in, in terms of Brexit. And uh, he supposedly said, I don't know if it's been confirmed, uh, that he wants to lead uh, the negotiations in, in French. I, I don't know. I mean, it it seems like it was kind of an overblown media statement. I'm, I'm not quite sure if he actually said it or said it that way. And and again, we'll just have to wait and see what, what the arrangements are. I, I, I trust that the... Uh, 
the arrangements will be made in uh, in a consensual way. So it's of course it's they good will. for I everyone mean, involved. Yeah. Michel Barnier is a French speaker, so naturally he will be speaking in French. But I don't think they're going to ban interpreters from the from the talks to make it harder for the Brits. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's no reason why we cannot have these negotiations with interpreters. I mean, that's the usual procedure in, in, in Brussels. So I, I don't see a, a big difference there. No, maybe they'll just uh, and, insist and the point on sending precisely the invoice. Of interpreting... Yeah, sorry. Maybe they'll just insist on sending the invoice this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the UK is still a member of the European Union and there are arrangements in place for organizing and paying for interpretation as well. So. I expect that to continue and up, as I was going to say, the whole point of interpreting is to ensure equal access um, for everyone in, in these kinds of negotiations. And that, that will probably be what's going to happen. Absolutely. Fingers crossed it'll go well. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Alexander. Thank you very much. For those of you who are interested in updates on interpreting, trading and technology, follow Alexander on Twitter. He has two accounts, at Adreshel and at TabTurp. Also, I can definitely recommend his two podcasts, Troublesome Terps, which he co-presents with other interpreters, Jonathan Downey and Alexander Gansmeyer, and Lang FM, the podcast on his website. There are links to both of them in the program information, so go ahead and check them out. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Linguali. Thank you for listening. <laughs>